the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I'm not going to tell you where, though. You just got to search our names. <laughs> and uh, that'd be f- I wonder if you just type in Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins, what'll show up? Uh, probably nothing. Nothing bad, I don't think. I mean, fingers, I think fingers crossed. will come up. Our churches will come up. I think that's about I'm scared. all. I'm scared to do it now. Don't oh. do it. I don't want to know. <laughs> don't tell me. A better place to go, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And uh, if you've never joined us before, the show is sort of a hodgepodge. It's a veritable smorgasbord of ideas oh, and I'm topics hungry. and conversations. And, you know, we've said it from the get-go. Our goal is to not tie up every story or every idea with a nice pretty bow. We know that. Things are not always black and white, and it seems like people, by and large, are shouting louder and louder from their echo chambers, from mm-hmm. their confirmation biases, and we want to be a place, hopefully, uh, to engage in dialogue, to lean in rather than away, and to maybe better understand the person that we disagree with, and uh, I don't know that we always do a great job of that, but um, it's something that I really care about, and I think you do too, and I think it's it's hard when it comes to topics like this next one, and uh, some of you are aware that uh, President Trump has a Twitter account. He's been on there a couple of times. He's and, been uh, on there a couple of times. <laughs> and it seems We're like... We're an understatement today. <laughs> every, every third or fourth tweet, it seems, to catch some kind of media fire. And um, so most recently, uh, he's tweeted and been tweeting um, about a little city called Baltimore. Why don't right. you fill us in what's going on there just a little bit? It was really interesting over the weekend because uh, there's always I always uh, I'm I'm not in tune enough to the political landscape to always know, like, why did he write that? Like, where did that come from? And so uh, it was really a, um, a criticism of Representative Elijah Cummings, who represents a large portion of Baltimore. And uh, he wrote um, basically he used some very um, pointed language to describe Baltimore and the, particularly the part of Baltimore that Elijah Cummings oversees. I think it's West Baltimore. Uh, he called it a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. Um, and so people were then jumping on the tweets going, oh, this is another racial attack. This is another inappropriate way to um, to categorize Americans and people uh, but people on the other side going, well, is he wrong? Uh, is uh, isn't this area of Baltimore actually 
one of the worst places to live in the country. And we're sorry that people do have to live like that. But shouldn't they be asking their representative? Yeah. Why is it like this? And so it became very partisan. I'll shock you with that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, it became very partisan on both sides. The Baltimore Sun wrote a scathing editorial uh, towards the uh, Trump administration. But then there's other editorials. And you and I have tried to be very even handed in our reading about this on both sides and people going, well, you know, it's it's a it's a Democratic run city for ages and, and generations. And it's in this place. So maybe the president is making a good point. And really, uh, I want to get to what do you do with this eventually? But it's really been uh this is this week's Twitter war where, where Donald Trump, President Trump writes a tweet and then people on both sides volley it back and forth for a week and it gets really ugly. And uh, that's what this one was about this time. And it re- I should say Elijah Cummings uh, is the senator, I believe, the representative. I hope I get this right, who oversees uh, the oversight committee. So think in terms of the committees who've been really hounding Donald Trump and his administration. Uh, so. It wasn't Which is a, part, part of their job. I mean, that's 100 okay. percent. My point in bringing this up is to say, uh, I don't think this was written where Donald Trump said, I'm really concerned about Baltimore. Let me tweet about Baltimore. I think it was more. I want to take down Elijah Cummings. Let me write about Baltimore a okay. little bit for more background. I OK, think. yeah. So that may or may not be true. I don't know that we'll ever actually know that. Yep. And you mentioned we want to talk about what do we do with this before we do that. Uh, I want to listen to CNN correspondent. Uh, Victor Blackwell, who responded to the tweet initially and uh, gave a pretty emotional response. We're going to hear that and then kind of dive in afterwards. Crime infested and breeding concept infested, he says. The president says about Congressman Cummings district that no human would want to live there. You know who did, Mr. President? I did. From the day I was brought home from the hospital to the day I left for college. And a lot of people I care about still do. There are challenges, no doubt. But people are proud of their community. I don't want to sound self-righteous. But people get up and go to work there. They care for their families there. They love their children who pledge allegiance to the flag, just like people who live in districts of congressmen who support you, sir. They are Americans, too. We'll be right back. Okay, so... That obviously was an, an emotional response, particularly from someone who has lived in the area uh, that Trump is referencing here. And as someone who grew up outside Detroit, who has family in Detroit, mm-hmm. there is a visceral closeness to some of that sentiment for yep. me. Yep. Um, because you'll note even part of what, what Blackwell didn't say was that there isn't a crime issue. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, if given more time, maybe he would actually recognize like, yeah, there are all sorts of problems in our city. Part of my struggle with the tweet war is that sometimes even true things are said with no empathy Mm. or with no tact. And we sometimes will say, well, if it's true, it's true. It doesn't matter how you say it. And I just don't think that's true. Now, obviously, there's I mean, not surprisingly, right? Like like you said, the divide, the partisan divide has just ripped wider and wider and wider. And um, there's a lot to be said about calling a place rat infested and then did some digging and it turns out there actually are a lot of rats there. But to then say things like no human would want to live there when there are humans living there and want to live there. Yes. I'm sure there are plenty that are trying to get out and can't, 
but I'm sure there are even more that are saying, no, this is our city. Yeah. We care about this community. And that's, that's where it starts to get really messy for me because, mm-hmm. and again, there's so many cards that are so easy to play. And that, that seems to be where I, I get really frustrated because there's no you know real room for this dialogue. But I think like Baltimore, for example, ranks number one for robberies and number two for murders. Uh, many of the other rat-infested cities also rank high for violent crimes. Their infrastructure is crumbling. The middle class has largely abandoned them. And this is an article um, from a fairly conservative source saying, yeah, there are there are some real actual issues here. And in a lot of these cities um, where there has been problems for a long, long time, uh, they're run by Democratic governments. So mm-hmm. I, I and again, maybe I'm overreaching here. I, I wonder if there isn't something to be said about. Hey, can we have civil discourse and talk about infrastructure issues without using insults, without showing a lack of care? Yes. That's like that to me seems so important. It's like we kind of give this pass. We're like, well, if he's right, then it doesn't matter how he said it. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that I'm not even just saying for the president. I'm saying for anybody. I'm saying for yep. there's all sorts of there's a couple of pastors who've been trolling Trump's Twitter account who are spewing some of the most hateful, vile yeah. things I've ever seen. And their Twitter handle literally says, Pastor so-and-so yeah, or Bishop yeah. so-and-so. And I'm like, is that the best use of your resource? Yeah, I'm yeah. not excusing anybody. I'm just saying you can be right in the wrong way. And this seems like another example of something that has all sorts of undercurrent and side energy and ulterior motive and ultimately just lacks empathy. I just, I, I, along the lines of what you're saying, it just... It's so tiresome that these things are done to make political points on both sides instead of all of us going, okay, what do we do about ball? What do we do about what's going on there? Mm. Uh, Whether he's, you know, so much of the news now is about Donald Trump's tweet. And then it's on the other side about is Elijah Cummings a good representative and back and forth. How about we go? What are the issues that are causing it to be the way that you just described it to be or that are causing, you know, parts of New York city or Chicago or whatever else it might be. When are we going to get to the point where it's like, okay, we as a government are going to put things aside and we're going to try to figure this out so that these places don't exist in the greatest nation in the world. Right. Yeah, like, right. How do we get to that point? But instead it's going to be back and forth about tweets and about representatives. And you know what? Baltimore's probably going to be the same way in six months to a year. And, and until we start getting serious about, about trying to fix things. Well, and how, how do we have a conversation about some of the I institutional or systemic issues? Because in some, in some sense, like Trump actually has a leg to stand on to say, hey, some of these cities that once were great booming cities actually under certain kinds of leadership are really struggling. And here's the data and here's the statistics. That's that. I think that's a that's the groundwork for a discussion. Yep. But the tweet stuff about, you know, rat infestation or no human want to live there or. And again, it's Bernie yep. Sanders, too. Bernie yep. Sanders was equating cities to, you know, third world countries. Yep. That's not good rhetoric either. Yep. I'm not excusing any of it. I just think. Have we become so in love with the clickbait retweet yes. power that we throw any sense of tact out the window as long as it as long as it gets media right as long as it gets yeah. play it's it's worth doing it and maybe and scores I don't know. scores political point I mean right. you and I are both discouraged exactly. by because I'm really yeah, discouraged by I, it I think Baltimore this area of Baltimore is a really a struggling bad place. The question is, was it brought up on both sides to make political points and to start this back and forth or to say, Hey, now let's all gather together and let's try to fix this. And and, that's where it's, and we'll never know the motive, but I I can still stand here though, at least for now and say the rhetoric needs to, needs to get better. We need to do better. And I think that we can. Yep. You've been listening to the common good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm. And I'd mentioned before the break, you know, in this kind of hyper-polarized, hyper-angry, kind of caught in our echo chambers and our confirmation bias, articles like this one kind of cut through all the noise for me. We also sort of just like Scott Sauls anyway. He's, he's one of the guys, one of the few guys that I know that is really good at sort of like the pithy, like tweetable quotes but then also writes with yep. like a level of depth and wisdom. Often it's kind of one or the other, like the person writes with a lot of depth, but they can't really distill it down to these like sticky statements mm-hmm. or all, all they write are like these sticky statements. And then they actually kind of struggle in the long form. So he, he wrote an article called toward a truer Christianity, abandoning us against them. And you can actually find this yourself at Scott He wrote it on June 29th. Uh, why don't you fill us in on what he's talking about here and uh, let's go at it. So he says, in my role as a so-called public Christian who leads a church and weighs in on the issues of the day through speaking, discourse, and writing, I'm eager to nurture environments in which people can openly disagree, but without the fear of being caricatured, labeled, or demonized. Man, that sounds like a great world. Yeah, right. In other words, I'm for disagreeing in an agreeable fashion. I guess you could say that I'm a strong advocate for tolerance. So he throws out that word on purpose. He wants to kind of talk about tolerance. He says Tim Keller, who we know is a a well-known author, speaker, but he was also kind of Scott Saul's mentor. Uh, He says Tim Keller says that tolerance does not require us to abandon our convictions. True tolerance, says Keller, is revealed by how our convictions lead us to treat people who disagree with us. Tolerance that only tolerates people who think like us is not tolerance. Let's be honest. It is covert prejudice. It is a form of thinly veiled contempt i think that's fascinating because a lot of times we think with tolerance you're just tolerating what someone else believes and he's saying no tolerance is being able to disagree with people while still treating them well and so i love it even how saul's titles this toward a truer christianity abandoning us against them here's what we need to realize and we all do realize this is our culture we talked about it earlier today is our culture is very much us against them that's what we do and uh, whether it be online, in the media, in our politics. And so Saul's is saying our Christianity cannot fall into that. It cannot be an us against them scenario, but instead needs to be something different that is around this concept of tolerance, as is always the case. Uh, <laughs> when I read Scott Saul stuff, I'm like, yes, yes, I, I like that. How do we get to that? How do we do that? So. Uh, that's my take on this on this blog post by Saul so far. So here's what he says that I think kind of brings the whole thing together. He says, for the Christian witness to be taken seriously, which I think we all want, right? For the Christian witness to be taken seriously in an increasingly pluralistic, secular, non-religious environment such as the West, it's critical for Christians to learn and relearn the fine art of being able to, one, have integrity in our convictions, mm-hmm. two, genuinely love, listen to, and serve those who do not share our convictions, and three, be committed to both at the same time. <laughs> and that third one is so important and so hard to do because I feel like we are prone to be really strong in one or the other, right? It's all about the strength of our convictions or it's all about serving our neighbor. And I think it, what he's saying here is that it needs to be both. And what we forget is that, you know, there's been all these articles that are writing about the year of outrage and outrage porn. Yes, like that's yes. all, all across the place. People are sort of noticing that the temperature is getting cranked up severely. And he says later in the article, He says, I like what a former Harvard chaplain said about bridging relational divides between people who disagree, even on the most fundamental level. He writes this. The divide between Christians and atheists is deep. 
I'm dedicated to bridging that divide, to working with atheists, Christians, and people of all different beliefs and backgrounds. I'm building a more cooperative world. We have a lot of work to do. My hope is to help foster better dialogue between Christians and atheists and that together we can work to see a world in which people are able to have honest, challenging, and loving conversation across lines of difference. The Harvard chaplain's name is Chris Stedman. He describes himself both as queer and an atheist. Mm. So I imagine like even just telling you that much, is that change for you, Brian, from <laughs> what I just read of his? Like, were you cheering and now not cheering like does that expose some of our own kind of confirmation bias like oh this is someone oh yeah that sounds like our vision for the show and then he and i think scott is writing this very intentionally this way yes and he gives you the quote first and then he tells you about him right so does that change no i like what that guy says i'm for it like you said you you, it doesn't change uh the message there uh, it does bring up some questions for me. What is what is an atheist chaplain? But that that is a, probably a conversation for another day. That is confusing. It feels oxymoronic to me, uh, if you will. Uh, but no, it doesn't really change what he said. My hope is to help foster better dialogue between Christians and atheists and that together we can work to see a world in which people are able to have honest, challenging and loving conversation across lines of difference. I would say that. If that is true of our churches, our churches are winning. They're doing something right. We're doing what we are called to be doing. But you're right. I think he definitely went in there to stir the pot because by then dropping that he is a queer atheist uh, probably made a lot of people go, oh, wait, no, I don't like what he said. Yeah, right. Which is then becomes the definition of earlier of being intolerant and, and not being able to have a conversation even with people you disagree with. I like what he says here. He says, do we realize how liberating and how Christ-like it is to enter discussions about culture's contested issues in a way that builds bridges instead of burning them? Can we see the rightness of inviting friends, colleagues, and neighbors to belong and journey with us before they believe with us? Can we see to the potential that there is for fruit if we begin to embrace people before they agree with us and uh, whether they end up agreeing with us at all? In this, Jesus shows us the way. When the rich young ruler walked away, rejecting Jesus' offer to come follow him, Jesus looked at the man and loved him. And as for the man who walked away from Jesus, he was sad, not angry or hostile. He was sad. And I think mm. that that is a really significant rubric i think for how we engage with people that we disagree with maybe on every point and i don't know that christians in particular do this one very well yeah he says later on from his book jesus outside the lines which can i just add is a fascinating book yeah is a great book it's called it's his very first book he wrote called jesus outside the lines Uh, he says what matters more to us that we successfully put others in their place or that we are known to love well that we win culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays, or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love. God have mercy on us if we do not love well, because all that matters to us is being right and winning arguments. Truth and love can go together. Truth and love must go together. Notice he doesn't say the loving thing is to never have arguments. Right. That's not his point. And I think we go that way. Like We always think it has to be truth or love. And he's not saying that. He said, how are we going to argue? How are we going to disagree? How are we going to love people who we vehemently disagree with? And that's where he's saying there's a truer Christianity abandoning the us against them. The other thing that I find frustrating, particularly in the course of like arguments and discourse, I think it was Deb Hirsch who said, um, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, not a feminine quality. And so often we talk about gentleness as weakness, but it's 
it's quite literally given to us as one of the characteristics of the outpouring of a spirit-filled life. So when he references Peter, who talks about, yeah, be prepared to give a defense and do it with gentleness and respect, right? Or Paul said in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, let your speech always be gracious. Always is sort of a comprehensive word. Like he's (laughs) saying, these guys were not making just like cute suggestions so that everyone behaved. He's saying that this is actually really, really important to your ecclesiology, your missiology, if you're, if you're, just right, but you're a jerk in doing it, mm. or you're unwilling to ever yeah. break bread with, or have a conversation with, or actually even learn about the person with whom you disagree. And he's like, you're not any better than what everyone else is already doing. Exactly. Like to be the peculiar people of Jesus, I think means that we look differently, especially in our disagreements. Yeah. And he talks about the basis of this being the grace that God has shown to us. He said, it's because of this reality, this grace that we Christians listen to this. We should be the least offended and the least offensive people in the world. Yeah, that's and then really he says, good. maybe so. That's powerful because I don't think that that is, I almost said, I don't think that's true of a lot of us. I just don't think that's the goal hmm. of a lot of us, whether it's true or not. I'm not sure that's the goal. And and I really like how he holds that up. Why don't you think it's the goal? It's not the, it's not the, it's not the pond that we swim in, right? It's not the, that's not how our culture works. And so, um, we, we easily lose sight of the grace that's been shown to us through Jesus Christ, uh, and we become, over time, less gracious people. And I think this is a great call that, in view of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, show that same grace to other people. I think that's powerful. Yeah, the million-dollar question for me comes right in the middle of the article. It says, what matters more to us, that we successfully put others in their place or that we are known to love well? That's great. That we win culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love. I, again, way easier said than done, but like I hear that and I want I just want to stand up and cheer. I, yep. I would love for us to be a part of moving towards that kind of life. You've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad you're joining us today. You can always find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. Uh, or you can find our podcast wherever it is you find our podcast. You know, I think we learned yesterday, I think we knew this, but like you can listen at 1160hope.com. You can listen to us live. There's an app. You got, there's all sorts of ways to get us. That was pretending to not know. I don't think I'm aware of these. For the Facebook I just Live. Come. Do you not listen to Facebook Live at all or to the live stream on the website? I do, but we've never talked about it. Oh, yeah, I got we've you. never really talked about it. I got Text you. us 68683 as well. 68683. Uh, well, we are. <laughs> It feels like we're in the middle of the next presidential election season when then you realize how far away it is. And it's really discouraging. <laughs> like, it's not that far away. I mean, it, a year and a half. Uh, that's going to be a This is how lot. it is every time, though, isn't it? It feels not, like it's, it's more new. now. feels like it's more now. Why do you think it, why does it feel like it's more now than usual? I just it's I think it's I think maybe I'm paying attention to it more or maybe it's just hmm. the culture we live in now where it's like. It's just so, it feels so slimy and they're all just yelling at each other. It hasn't always been slimy, you don't I think? I know. I think, to, I, I think I'm legitimately asking. I don't know. There's just something. It, it feels like it was always like at the, the bottom rung and now we're at a one rung lower than the bottom deeper, rung. Like we're, we're a, sub, <laughs> a sub-zero rung. It feels like we've gone down a little further. But with that in mind, Christianity Today released an article uh, just last week uh, entitled this, What Psychology Offers Christians Amid Political Polarization? 
So again, let me read that for you. What, what psychology offers Christians amid political polarization? It begins like this. Unprepared for all the political drama after the 2016 election, a number of churches split up over disagreements on whether Christians should support President Trump or not. As we face the 2020 election, the pressure to choose a side remains intense. Recent Democrat, uh, Democratic candidates have called for the establishment of a, quote, religious left to defeat, quote, the religious right. Groups like Red Letter Christians vehemently denounce anyone who supports President Trump as abandoning Jesus and part of a toxic Christianity. And then it goes on to say that the ter- church tension is also part of a nat- natural tension, national tension. And before getting to their solution to this or what they bring up, I guess I would start by you as a pastor, me as a pastor. Do you feel this rift even within your own church? Not splitting the church, but do you feel this tension and this rift even within your own church? Nah, we're all kumbaya right <laughs> now, man. We just, we start and end every service holding hands and uh, we're all just getting a lot of potlucks. A lot of high fives. I'm going with sarcasm here. Uh, I should hope so. Yeah, I think um, in general, the tension is much more pronounced online than it is in person. True. That's what always surprises me, that sometimes people that I see interact in our lobby on Sundays are so kind and lovely to people that I know they disagree with. And then you hop on their Facebook page. You're like, wow, you're... very different person here. Like it's <laughs> you're just, mean. It's very yeah, just straight up mean. Not even just that I disagree, but like, wow, your methodology is very different than what you what you give off in person. And I, the other thing that's surprising is that um, some of that disparity uh, catches me off guard because the in person like care and cordiality doesn't seem fake. It seems really yes. legitimate. So I'm like, so it's not like oh they're this fake happy on Sundays and then they show who they really are. On Facebook, I think it's actually the other way around. I think, oh, when you're around people looking them in the eyes, I think that's more true of who you mm. really are. And then we get, you know, kind of in these these vacuum spaces yes. where like I can say whatever I want and then it kind of spins out of control a little that's, bit. That's very true. Psychology, this uh, goes on to say, explains this political polarization as an effective groupthink. Put in a position of us versus them, people will strongly side with those who think and act like themselves and want nothing to do with the other side. This creates a spiraling effect, which further widens the us versus them gap. So this goes every right. These are the people who only watch Fox News or only watch MSNBC, only interact with people in their own tribe. And and it spirals. And this uh, gets this is we talk about this all the time. And so uh, you begin demonizing the other side. So here's the solution. And interestingly, uh, And I think why Christianity Today is writing about this is that the solution is very Christian. It's very biblical, I should say. It says, a key mitigator to this hostility between groups is intellectual humility, a term psychologists broadly define as, quote, recognizing that one's beliefs and opinions might be incorrect, Uh, close quote. And so basically what it's saying is to get away from this polarization and this demonizing of the other side you need to have every now and then think that your opinion uh, could be wrong or that their opinion might have some validity. It goes back to what we talked about, uh, I think, yesterday, where we were talking about uh, every now and then have a conversation with somebody uh, from, uh, I'm using quotes, the other side, sure. <laughs> having conversations. How does this strike you, this, uh, this uh, intellectual humility? Yeah, it goes on to say that uh, this kind of humility may be particularly applicable to this contemporary moment, but humility has been integral to the Christian faith. We believe mm-hmm. in a God who humbled himself to the point of death, Philippians 2. Jesus taught us 
to think of others before ourselves, also Philippians 2, says, despite the infancy of studying this concept formally, psychology has already pointed to the importance of intellectual uh, humility in social interactions around hot-button topics. One study suggested that participants with greater intellectual humility spent more time trying to understand views with which they disagreed and also were more likely Mm. to accurately assess their own knowledge on obscure topics. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, they behave nicer in the public sphere. People tend to like them more. They're more open to disagreements. Like it literally makes them more uh, physiologically capable of engaging with opinions other than their own, which I feel like is an important skill for all of us to grow in. But this idea of intellectual humility is ironic because it's saying it's also, it tends to be people who have the most education that tend to be able to, um, uh, they tend to struggle the most with this because they end up being so sure of their own conclusions before ever interacting with anybody else. Yeah. And so uh, this biblical concept of humility in general, right? Like uh, Jesus, um, above. (laughs) He, he was the picture of humility. And uh, I do, I love this picture that this guy, that these psychologists are painting, that this uh, giving other people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, just because somebody votes for uh, a D rather than an R or vice versa, doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. Uh, and I don't know, social media, I, sometimes I think I put too much on social media, but this does feel like one area where social media has really, um, kind of, it's kind of been like pouring gasoline on a fire a little bit. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what you think is the solution to that. Like, how how do you encourage people to grow in intellectual humility? Uh, I think you can only grow yourself. Like, I, it'd be one thing to be like, "Hey, we've got to change this as a culture." That's never going to happen. And, and so, I guess what I would want to say is, if if you uh, struggle with this demonizing of the other side or whatever, like maybe take the step to go have a conversation with somebody who doesn't support Donald Trump or who does support Donald Trump or who doesn't support X or doesn't support Y. I think you can make changes in your own life that will bring you to become more intellectually humble uh, as opposed to us being like, wow, we have to change as a culture. I think our culture is moving away from intellectual humility. So I don't know. How would you answer that? Uh, I'm going to answer by reading more from this article. (laughs) That's great. It says, true, the Bible commands us to care for the poor and oppressed and to welcome the stranger from another land. Also true, the Bible commands us to defend the value of life and sanctity of marriage. Also important, though, Christians are commanded to demonstrate God's love in their love for one another so that in our unity, the world would know God. How are we doing this um, uh, as we meditate between opposing political parties? And it ends by saying, when it comes to whom we should vote for in the 2020 election, the recent surge in intellectual humility research echoes a resounding biblical call to humility. Mm. If we transcend partisanship in the upcoming election in service of loving one another, we will ultimately demonstrate God's love, which, That's again, good. way easier said than done, yep. but a really, really important call. And I'd love that if somebody ran on the platform of humility right now. I'd be hard pressed not to vote. Maybe yeah. if in the debate last night someone just got up and said, "I'm going for humility." Yeah, good, good. Well, you've been listening to the Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. If you're listening via podcast, would you do us a favor? Just just oh, do us a favor. Nicely. <laughs> you ask nicely. Yeah. I've never heard you aggressively ask this question. <laughs> you don't even know what I'm going to say. Either way, if you are, it would really mean a lot to us if you like 
subscribe and review. Those things actually do somehow help us and it helps the algorithm, helps more people see the show and uh, show it to a friend. Take your phone right now, walk up to a stranger and say, hey, <laughs> I'm listening to these two yahoos and it's not totally terrible. So uh, that, <laughs> that would help us. Let's get this grassroots phone sharing campaign hey, check underway. Out this podcast. It's, it's totally average. Just, hey, are you looking great. for a C minus way? <laughs> are you <laughs> killing time? Here it is. Do you got time just burning a hole in your pocket? The common good. Killing time from four to six. <laughs> I like that. That's not the catchiest thing we've ever said. But all right. So I uh, I teased this up earlier. The headline says my church came together to pay off each member's debt. This is on Sojo.net. And uh, I think it is a fascinating story that I'd love for you to tell us more about. Yeah. And when you first read the headline, you're like, OK, so they took up a collection in order to pay off people's debt. And it's right. not actually what it is. Right. So let me tell you about this. OK. Uh, the average U.S. household, the article begins, carries a balance of almost seven thousand dollars at the end of the month. And if you miss a payment, interest may jump from 15% to more than 20%. Credit cards are part of a predatory industry with a history of racial bias, it says. Many people can afford only the minimum monthly payment, uh, barely making a dent in the principal. Hmm. About 10 years ago at Circle of Hope, this author's church in Philadelphia, uh, he writes, we began experimenting with, quote, credit card debt annihilation. Our team's motto came from Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul urged believers to owe no one anything except love. And so we identified church members with credit card debt and an income. We established three cohorts with a half dozen participants. We want you to hear that. I want to read the whole thing just so you see the creativity. Here. Yes, yes. We established three cohorts with a half dozen participants in each. Each member covenanted to 100% financial transparency within their cohort to meet monthly with the group and with their financial coach to stop using credit cards altogether. Wow. Each cohort started with seed money and a three-year payoff plan to bring the entire cohort out of credit card Debt. We discerned an order of debt annihilation. Usually the card with the highest interest rate among all the cohort members was paid off first. Right. We paid off one line of credit at a time working down the list. The biggest impact was made on the first day when the seed money paid off most problematic cards. And as we worked down the list, each participant made their own minimum payment. Uh, after someone's credit card debt was annihilated, they kept paying in the same order. The amount that formerly went to their own minimum got added to their third party check each month and the specific lender. And it goes on and on and on. Members of our cohorts had used their cards for temporary financial relief. When they needed money, they had turned to a lending corporation rather than to community. Oh man. Their debt stories, how their debt grew range from impulsive spending to medical debt to housing crisis. So the church is saying we are stepping in and instead of you turning to a lender who's going to charge you great interest, we are going to help you. We're going to be the lender, but you're also going to be grow to become a lender to others right. in the community. It says we've completed three cohorts using this strategy, eliminating more than a hundred thousand dollars in principal debt. And we've probably saved as much in interest inspired by good stories of resistance in scripture. Uh, we're trying to embody new possibilities, moving together from shame into trust and from bondage into mutu mutuality. And man, so much to cover here. Uh, but so much, but, but at the core of it, we want to say, man, this circle of hope church in Philadelphia is, is doing some work here. They're being the church. They're being a church family, helping people out of debt and then helping people who come out of debt, uh, 
kind of help them help others get out of debt. What man? What an encouraging story. So, and I actually interacted with them a little bit when uh, I was homeless in Philly. Stop, actually, really? it's, it's true. They they're the real deal. Uh, I don't know wow. if they're A plus rated or not, but they <laughs> like it is it, it is uh, inspiring because it was so long ago that I was there. Like I kind of forgot about it, but I saw the name. I was like, oh, I think I, I think I actually met some people there. They're 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 legitimate, and I think um, for me, like the most the most subversive part of this whole article is this one paragraph. It says, as a church, we are practicing putting limits on oppression from the dominant corporation culture, much in the way the Hebrews imagined and practiced during their their formation in the wilderness. The sabbatical year, the traditional Hebrew agricultural Sabbath year practiced every seven years, culminated in the vision of the Jubilee year. This mm. redistribution of land and release from debt bondage socialized the Hebrew people away from intergenerational poverty and wealth. Just as Sabbath teaches rest as resistance, setting a limit to oppressive working conditions of so freedom from credit card debt sets mutuality trust and simplicity as limits to economic oppression mm. I, and again you don't you don't have to agree theologically or economically or even politically with everything they're doing right but i have to say hats off to you for thinking creatively yep. about what the local expression of the church can look like they're looking at their actual community and saying all right what's one of the things that's a boot on the neck of the people of our community mm-hmm. what can we do about that and and the fact that this church isn't a huge church and they're not, it's not some big endowment. Like they're thinking really strategically. It's not one person paying like, off people's right. credit cards. Which, I mean, you know, props to the person that can do that too. Absolutely. I'm, I'm fine with that. But this like very uh, systemic, almost grassroots way of saying, how can we go after this together um, so that God's the hero, not some, you know what I mean? Like it, it's just a very communal way, I think, of saying, this is an issue. Let's get our brains together to figure out a way. Uh, to go after. I just think it's great. Yeah. And and we, we'd we be remiss not to say uh, those of you who are in deep credit card debt, you probably need to find some help because yeah, that totally. is crippling. It, yep. Everything they say in the story is true. Uh, the whole concept of lending and interest and compounding interest and stuff is made to the credit card companies are not giving out money out of altruism, right? <laughs> they, they're not. They, they know that they're making money through it and understood the way credit cards work. And so uh, it is important for you, you know, to, to kind of get a handle on that. And, and hopefully you're a part of a church community that can help you get a handle on this thing. But man, I don't, I'm a pastor. I don't think much about things. Like if you were like, how could I best help my church? I'm not sure that at the top of that list would be like financial independence and tr- and freedom from credit cards. When we know that most of our people, this isn't an inner city thing. We know most of our people in the western suburbs are in terrible debt, right? Whether it be student loan debt or credit card debt or whatever else. And so, this is something we could be doing to help our people. But I'm truthfully, I don't. It's not the first thing that comes to my mind. If you're like, what could you be doing for your people? I'm not like, oh yeah, help them get out of debt. And yeah, have that right. Sort of freedom. It's it's sort of like a it's like a it's like a silent, invisible oppression, right? Like it's it's much harder to identify. It actually, for, for me, I keep I keep seeing this phrase too: seed money. Uh, used in really creative, like effective ways. Like I, so, you know, I'm a part of Thrivent Financial. I'm a Thrivent member and a part of being a Thrivent member twice a year, you have access to what are called action teams. Okay. And uh, with an action team, you, you like pitch this proposal and you get a, a $250 visa card to use however you pitched. And so people will use it to like, you know, buy supplies to make brownies and then sell those brownies and, you know, make five wow. times as much for local ministry or a local soup kitchen. People will, 
um, you know, stand at Starbucks and like buy coffee for people as a way to like point them to a ministry event or some sort of. So literally every member twice a year gets two hundred fifty dollars to like go use this as seed money, really cool. and it almost always multiplies it tenfold to make an impact in their cities. And I think why aren't more people doing that? Yep. Like why? What would it look like for churches to be more creative about? Hey, here's here's the issue we're facing, and we're yes. going to go after this in a way that maybe we've never actually gone after before. That's such a cool story. And I applaud I applaud churches that are doing that. You've been listening to the Common Good right here on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We'd love to interact with you in a number number of different ways. <laughs> Yesterday I couldn't talk, and now it's on you. Yeah, I feel like it is contagious. I'm starting to really get worried. Maybe uh, maybe we need some time apart, Brian. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> I'm, I do not know what I'm going to say today, because I am on la- last show before a trip. So. Is that sort of like senioritis? Is, there it, a, is. <laughs> is it? So the other day, not even the other day when uh, I was, my wife and I were picking our kids up from their last day of school. It's always like fun because uh, the bell rings were waiting outside and, you know, all the kids are coming out. And these two younger kids, they couldn't have been more than first or second grade, go sprinting by us, just sprinting towards their parents, you know, yelling, school's out, school's <laughs> out. And I was like, oh, the joy of summer vacation. Yes. Oh, the joy. So. Yeah, I'm heading for, I'm actually going to a wedding in California this weekend. I've never stepped foot in the state of California in my life. That's crazy. As an East Coast guy. And so my wife and I actually have two different places to be. So it, she can't go with me. So I'm taking my oldest daughter. We're doing a little trip together. That's awesome. And uh, putting some time on either end of the trip to go to, we're going to spend a day in San Francisco nice. and some other stuff. So I couldn't be more excited, but I'm glad to be here for the day. And then I'm glad to hit the air. Gone. <laughs> Gone. Hit the air with Brian Fromm. All right, so here's some of the details before we dive in. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. You can tell Alexa, just subscribe to the Common Good Podcast. It still blows my mind when you I, said that yesterday. I don't have an Alexa, so I can't actually verify that this works, but people have said that it works. Mm-hmm. There's probably another podcast called The Common Good that you'll then accidentally subscribe to. Yep, don't do that. You'll say, wow, these guys sound way different leave in podcast bad, form. Leave them bad reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that helps us somehow. It makes me feel Oh, better. my goodness gracious. Uh, hopefully you come back more happy yeah. after vacation <laughs> you're you're playing a little injured today i well injured is definitely overselling it i have like old man neck issues <laughs> i don't know what it is my chiropractic brother is going to be very upset that i've done very little about this but it has something to do with carrying babies all the time nah, don't give me any excuse i'm, I'm just, just left wrong just old, old man neck issues <laughs> old is it obvious <laughs> the way that i'm sitting uh no just just, you've said it a few times and <laughs> you keep moving your neck and it just looks painful like yeah. let alone is painful just looks painful watching you do it so. i'm in a lot of pain right now oh. so, so i'm giddy for leaving town you're in pain with neck issues this is gonna be a show man <laughs> this is gonna be the a juxtaposition show. all right so here's the uh here's the headline of this story get rid of your crappy pastor done 
Did, did somebody from my congregation write this? Right, from Four Corners Community Church. Yeah. <laughs> Literally on the website. <laughs> so the uh, the author, David Hansen, uh, puts at the very top, this is one of the most read posts from my blog over the years, so he's kind of resharing it. And he says, I simply cannot count the number of complaints that I get to hear about other pastors. I've responded to such complaints many ways over the years, sometimes simply smile and nod without actually agreeing or conversely the serious head shake. I've advised the individuals to go and talk to their pastor about their complaint. I've even tried to convince the complainer that their pastor really is pretty good. But enough of that. I know what most of these complainers want. They want to get rid of their crappy pastor. The sooner the better. And so... (laughs) Without further ado, six steps to get rid of your crappy pastor and get a better pastor in your congregation. Why, why don't you start us off with number one? That's awesome. And this is from a website called digitalpastor.org. So he obviously deals with pastors. And uh, yeah, number one uh, is this. Uh, pray for your crappy pastor. I know you really don't want to pray for your pastor right now, but give it a try. Pray for your pastor's preaching, for your pastor's life, even for your pastor's family. Prayer was one of those things that Jesus was kind of big on. So go ahead and give it a try. So number one is pray. Let me read number two. You can go with this one. Number two, make sure your crappy pastor takes a day off. Okay. He says, really, you don't want your pastor doing all those things that annoy you any more than absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. Make sure everyone knows when the pastor's day off is and uh, don't call him that day. If there is a congregational event or an emergency or a wedding or a funeral on the normal day off, let it be known that your pastor will be taking another day off to make up for the time, you know, so that your crappy pastor is in the office less often to mess things up. Mm. Number three, insist that your crappy pastor takes every week of vacation in the contract. Did I tell you I'm going away next week? You did mention mention it. You haven't stopped smiling since. Many pastors leave unclaimed vacation days on the table every year. Let's face it, you don't really want your pastor around anyway, so encourage him or her to take all of the allowed vacation and make it easy uh, for them to leave town. Line up volunteers to take care of all the work around the congregation so the pastor doesn't have the extra work, has to work extra hard before leaving and when coming home. Uh, make sure everyone comes to worship so the pastor doesn't feel guilty about leaving for a Sunday. Number four, send your crappy pastor to continuing education events. Speaking of getting your crappy pastor out of town, uh, by contract, your pastor probably has continuing education time. Make sure that your pastor is attending lots of events with exciting speakers, great preachers, and innovative thinkers, you know, just so your pastor can see the ways in which he or she doesn't measure up. <laughs> While you're at it, go ahead and increase the continuing education budget. Make sure that there is no barrier to your pastor getting away from your congregation and to these events. People like people are are in tune enough to know that this is tongue in cheek, right? <laughs> oh, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna tell until the end of the article. I'm just picturing people right now being all mad. Like what? <laughs> Number five: Take over the tasks with which your pastor struggles. We all know that pastors should be good at everything, but from administration to preaching, from visitation with the elderly to youth events, chances are your crappy pastor has some places where these are struggles. Hire an administrative assistant. Get the parents and other volunteers to coordinate and host youth events. Get a group of volunteers together to visit with homebound members. There are all sorts of ways to make sure uh, that your crappy pastor doesn't mess up these tasks that he or she is already struggling with. <laughs> and then number six of ways to get rid of your crappy pastor, encourage your pastor to spend more time in prayer and reading. Now that you have freed up your pastor from all those tasks that were the worst trouble points, there's all sorts of extra time. You don't want him or her to jump right back into those tasks and mess them up, do you? Encourage them to go and read or spend time with other local pastors or spend more time intentionally in prayer. There you go. It's 
foolproof. <laughs> if you do these six simple things, I guarantee you will get rid of your crappy pastor. Get your congregational leaders on board with this plan. Recruit the key people in the congregation to help you with it. That's awesome. It says, take these six, six steps and watch your pastor become the sort of pastor you've always wanted. And so I, I love these, man. They're, we talk about a lot of these a lot. And sometimes they're on the church with too much um, expectation upon their pastor, but or just Sometimes it's on the pastor, right? Like that one, like take time off, take your day off, take your vacation. Uh, sometimes uh, it, that can be, uh, even if the church is like, you need to do this, it could be on the pastor to be like, no, I'm too important. I can't leave town. I can't do this. And um, these are, these are uh, while this was written in a tongue-in-cheek and funny way, I think these are six great ways uh, for churches to encourage their pastors and things for pastors to take really seriously in their own lives. Well, the thing that I appreciate, I mean, it's obviously cheeky, right? I hope it's obvious. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not actually, but um, again, and the caveat is not, I don't think the community is responsible for making sure he or she is taking vacation days or going to conferences, right? That's a part of the cheekiness, but the general arc of this whole article is um, it. It is the easiest thing to do to complain. And that's not to say that there aren't pastors worth complaining about. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying, hey, pray instead of complain. Sometimes some some people probably shouldn't be in yep. ministry, just in yep. general. But the heart posture of like, man, have I prayed for this person half as much as I've, as I've criticized yep. them? Uh, what would it look like to support and encourage them? And, and you know, it feels a little self-serving because we're both pastors. But I'll tell you what, man, the seasons where people unsolicited uh, have prayed for us and encouraged us. Um, I honestly have been some of the most life-giving seasons. And uh, I don't know, this the, the particular angle of this story was intriguing to me. Absolutely. And uh, I hope that it's encouraged. I'd love to know what people would add. Like, what's the thing that you do uh, or would do to encourage your, your pastor? If you're a pastor, what are the things that speak to you the most kind of when you're yeah. feeling like you're, uh, you're in a rut or you're kind of falling apart a little yeah. bit? You've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you joining us today on this Monday afternoon. Uh, and we love when we get people in the studio just to have some some conversation with. And with that in mind, we are uh, thrilled to welcome into our studio today, Mark Galley. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hey, glad to join you. Absolutely. Mark is the editor and chief of Christianity Today He's got lots of other things on his bio. Uh, but at Christianity Today and as the editor-in-chief, you've just written a series of columns um, about worship and about more about American Christianity called The Elusive Presence. Uh, and I'm curious, kind of a grand scale question, just your thoughts as to why you wrote this. Why did you feel like you wanted to invest this much time kind of uh talking about and dissecting and analyzing American Christianity? Well, I am uh, in my 60s now, and I've been observing. <laughs> I've been embedded in the evangelical movement for some time, since I've been like 13. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, reading about it, writing about it. And I thought, uh, well, this is kind of the time in life when one steps back and says, okay, this is what I'm observing. Now, part of that observation comes out of my, observing my own life. Yeah, as, yeah. as the very first essay in this uh, series indicated I remember coming to a conclusion, I can't remember if it was a single day or over a period of days, where I, I just realized I was a really good professional Christian. Mm. That is to say, I knew I could, I could be an editor at a, Christian, a leading Christian magazine, I could be a church member, I could be a, um, participate in the church's life, 
and not pray, not read my yeah. Bible. I knew how to, how to do it well. It yeah. wasn't that I didn't believe in God or didn't try to follow him, but there, it, there was not this sense of active uh, involvement with God and with me and God. Oh, it was like big. I was doing the things I was supposed to do. Right. And as I looked around, I began to realize that my whole life was kind of horizontally focused on love of neighbor as well. It should be, Hmm. Uh, but that there were large parts of the evangelical movement, especially American Christianity who were, I mean, that's our kind of a calling card in world Christianity. We are the doers. Yeah. We're the people that get things done. That's right. And I just got to thinking, where does the commandment love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your soul. How does that fit in? And that's what, got me thinking about this theme and decided to put it down into words. So that's actually a sentiment that Brian and I bring up a lot because we, we are both pastors and we have probably sometimes um, in an unplanned fashion admitted on the show, how, how tempting it is to get caught just in the, in the work of Christianity and how sometimes that's even perpetuated by our churches. Like, well, you're the professional, you're the one on stage. Mm-hmm. I give my tithe so that you do the work. <laughs> yeah. And, and that can be really convicting. And one of the things in one of these essays, uh, you were interviewing Rob Bell about uh, a book at the time that he'd written. You asked him, what, what is the, what is the purpose of the church? And he said, the purpose of the church is to make the world a better place. And I think many people at first blush would say, oh, that's a great answer. And yeah. you kind of go on to unpack a little bit of some of your issues with that. Would you talk to me a little bit more about that conversation and, and where you went? Yeah. Having in a seminary and then later studied uh, my church history, that's been one of my passions. I, it struck me that that was an almost identical phrase to uh, to uh, what, what we now call the social gospel, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which was whose vision in the 19th century was primarily the church's role was to make the world a better place along with industry, along with labor, along with education. That's what it it ended up devolving into Hmm. kind of a more purely social work with a religious veneer. And that's Hmm. what struck me as really amazing for him to say that because evangelical tradition has been basically uh, has fought against social justice movement. Now I think we've gotten to the point where we recognize getting involved in in the world, trying to help our neighborhoods be more just and fair and good and beautiful and flourishing is a good thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. But what struck me about that was, as I began to look around is that has become that notion that the church's job is to make the world a better place or the purpose of the church is to change the world. Mm. That's become kind of the overriding, what I'd call the ecclesiology or the view of the church. Yeah. I think and I need to qualify this. I think the church does have a mission to the world. No question about it. But right. I think the very purpose and essence of the church is not about making the world a better place. And so I argued in that, and I'm arguing in this entire series, our very purpose at the very core, which begins with worship, mm. is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we lose track of that, I don't know. I just feel it. it's a big problem. Let's summarize it. Well, that that's way. from the Westminster Catechism, right? <laughs> yes. To, to, right. To enjoy God, yeah. to glory in him. And yeah. I, I think that definition certainly does work in conjunction with, like you're saying, the love of neighbor and all of that. Yeah. But to get that order out of whack can actually yeah. really screw that's, things that's up. That's the thing I'm, I'm trying to address. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel like, um, as you've looked at this over the years and been a part of it, how do... Uh, what does it look like to get that right? Because it's such a fine line right there, right? The, the, the whole missional church movement and there's other stuff. How do churches get that right, that they've got enough mission going on, but it's driven by the right thing? What, what are some aspects of churches you think that do that right? Well, a lot of this comes down to uh, what I'd call uh, 
discernment of your own spirit. Mm. And I think that's the place where it begins. So when I make these sweeping statements about the evangelical church or the American church, I'm assuming the, the reader is going to do some discernment of spirit and saying, you know, that isn't really my experience or that really mm-hmm. is. And some of that discernment comes in uh, when I wake up in the morning, what am I most excited about? Mm. Uh, this morning was very typical. I just mm-hmm. did not want to do morning prayer. Mm. Just did not want to do it, which signals I have this to-do list yeah. that really makes me excited and interested about waking up and getting my day started, mm. which suggests that God is all well and good, but he's kind of get in, getting in the way <laughs> yeah. of the things I have to do today. Yeah. Mm. And that signals to me moment when I should just stop and say, Lord, my heart is not in the right place and I can't manipulate my heart to be in the right place. Only you can do that. Yeah. Right. So as I begin this time, uh, creating me a new heart, oh God, mm. creating me a new heart. Yeah. And um, I think that's where it starts. What does it motivate us? What does it get excited us? When, when we find ourselves, I don't know, uh, you gentlemen may be greater saints than I am, but there are days I don't want to go to worship. Yeah. Just Ian is. Just, yeah. <laughs> not, even, not even close. There are, I, I have tried to uh, punctuate my day more with prayer, even though it's a five yeah. or ten minute like time at noon or at late in the afternoon or evening. I find myself forgetting to do it. Mm. I find myself resistant to doing it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is with this, with a person who says he's given his life to God yes, and man. that he is, loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, yeah. doesn't want to spend even five <laughs> minutes at lunch with him. Right. What's yeah. with that? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I'm trying to emphasize is that this is not, in a sense, an unusual posture to be in. It's right. nothing to uh, despair and yeah. say, this is, I'm the worst human being ever. It's so utterly typical that we don't even hardly notice it. Yes. And what I'm trying to get us to do is notice it. Yes. Mm. Yes, we have to still get up, get our kids to school. We right. have to go to this Christian education committee. Yes, we need to share the gospel with our neighbors. Yeah, 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 of course. But what what is really driving that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so first off, I got to say how much I appreciate that posture. Because mm-hmm. I, I, that's, I, again, something we talk a lot about. Like, we were handed this tradition, this idea that especially the professional Christians probably get up every morning and just love it. And they're always in the word. And I always felt like such a failure yeah. because all the pastors that I knew, you know, were journaling 17 hours a day. And like, <laughs> I, I don't have that in me at all. So I'm just curious, just personally, because I think one of the best definitions of Sabbath I was ever given was what to ask the question, what stirs my affections for Christ? And I was in my twenties when I heard that. And I was like, I've never even asked that question. I just sort of did. I did Christian things. And I'm curious for you just as a human, as a, as an image bearer, what are the things that stir your affections for Christ right now in your own kind of daily, weekly rhythms? So I do, mm. uh, I'm, that's an odd phrase. I'm pretty religious about morning devotions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, uh, and I'm reading um, what's called Liturgy of the Hours. It's a Catholic resource. Mm, yes. But it includes three psalms. It includes uh, uh, an opening psalm, three psalms, uh, a longer scripture reading, and then I usually a, a a reading from the ancient church fathers and then concludes with a prayer. So that's, that's an absolute minimum. Love it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there are days when I just do it because I know I need to keep doing it. Yeah. But, it, it, but invariably there's some part of that morning in which I go click. Okay. Yes. This is what I'm about. Yes. It's the Lord. Yes. The Lord first, first and foremost. Yeah. And when I'm able to just stop and do that, uh, if I can, it doesn't happen very much at noon, I will have to admit. Sometimes <laughs> I end up with evening prayer, sometimes mm. prayer right before I go to bed. 
Um, anytime I can, um, so that would be part of it. Just, uh, in other words, anything I'm interested in, hmm. I try to find excuses during the day to do it. Hmm. So if there's something I can do during the day to help me remind myself to uh, whatever, <laughs> I try to make a discipline of it. And that's, yeah. But it has to be an engaged discipline. It can't be I'm just doing this to get it out of the way yeah, right. and I can chalk up. I did a devotional mm-hmm. eight days in a row. Isn't right. that great? Yeah. Right. But more entering into it, engaging it. Uh, sometimes just stopping in the middle of it and saying, okay, instead of just reading this road, let's just stop and meditate on this. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm finding this fascinating. So let's do another let's do another segment of it. And uh, we're excited that Mark Galley is here with us. Mark is going to stay with us for another segment here on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And we are joined in studio uh, by Mark Galley. Mark is the editor and chief of Christianity Today. And uh, Mark, uh, looking at your bio, I I came across one fascinating line. It says this, before becoming a journalist, he was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years, but he subsequently changed his denominational affiliation to Anglican. Uh, So you're steeped in the evangelical world and you were a Presbyterian pastor. Now you're an Anglican. I just want to hear about that journey a little bit. Well, when I was a pastor, I was naturally uh, struggling with this very same issue. And I Hmm. found... My morning prayers, which were all driven by uh, extemporaneous prayer, yeah. I found myself praying in ways that made me think, that isn't really what I'm trying to say, or mm-hmm. that feels so paltry and thin compared to what I'm actually wanting to express to God. And I found in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, prayers that were just absolutely magnificent that summed up what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Most merciful God, I've, I, I, I confess to you that I've sinned in word and, you know, by what I've done and what, what I have left undone. That's right. And it goes on in that sort of vein. And I, I, I finished that. And as the prayer is moving along, I'm thinking of individual sins, but it talks about it generally. And I think, yeah, that's what I've been meaning to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So when I left the pastor to become a journalist, I decided, well, maybe I should check into a more liturgical uh, form of worship. And I found that it was... Uh, I will say for a person like me, in terms of this notion of the love of God, the, the liturgical worship does, in fact, help spark that more mm, uh, interesting. than anything, uh, partly because, uh, partly pr- precisely because it's, it's, uh, it's, we repeat the same prayers and responses every week that uh, yeah. most, many people find that a turnoff for that sort of thing. Mm. I find that uh, as I'm forced to li- read those or listen to those same prayer responses, it forces me to go deeper into the text. Yes, right. And so that helps me nurture that desire for God. Wow. It's the same sense of like the Lectio Divina, right? This divine reading is, is you know, I think so often we crave new and shiny. Yeah. And like one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit that Jesus tells us is that he'll remind you of the things I've already told you. This this sort of like ancient, remember what I told you then yeah. when you're, you know, tempted to crave new or shiny or fast. And I yeah. think... And what you're explaining there is actually, really true. Boredom is probably a signal from the Holy Spirit that not to go on to something new, but to find mm. out why are you bored? Oh, that's why are you question. bored with it? What do you do with that question? When you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you in that way, like, why are you bored with this? Where do you go? Where, where does your mind and heart uh, go? Uh, it, one of the things it forces me to do, go, okay, what is it, what is it about this that uh, I'm finding boring? And well, let's just keep reading it until it's not. That really? Sort of thing. Yeah. What is going on? What is really going on here? Wow. See, I think that's that's interesting because I, I don't know that 
And maybe maybe there's some research to support this. It feels like our attention spans as a culture are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Definitely, yeah. The first time I was invited to write for like an online blog, they're like, keep it 700 words or less, emphasis on or less. Or less. I was yeah. like, 700 is an introduction. Like, what? Are, <laughs> like, people don't have patience for no. that. Like, how do you help inspire people to push through? The boredom, whether they f- consider themselves a religious person or not, there we know that a lot of listeners are kind of like dipping a toe in the waters of religious conversation. Like, what advice or encouragement would you give, like when you're feeling the urge just to close it up, walk away, move on to something new? Like, how yeah, do you but power just through? to remind yourself that I think boredom is a is a gift of the spirit. Wow, it means that there is something askew in your heart and in your mind, and yeah. you're not re- you're actually looking at something. Usually, it's scripture. Yeah, uh, that's actually the word of God to you. Mm. And uh, it may not be that there's something wrong with scripture, but there may be something wrong with you. I yeah. mean, <laughs> one of my theories is that, or not, 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 not with you. I don't mean to be moralistic about that. Sure, but, sure. But th- there's that part of us that just really doesn't want to know God and to love him because to know God means I'll have to do things. <laughs> I'll have to obey him when I don't feel like it. Uh-huh. I'll have to go through some suffering. I will have to be willing to be exposed to some sins in my life. That's right. Um, and I mean, we, we talk about uh, the lack of Bible knowledge in yeah. the last generation falling off. And there's and we've tended to chalk it up to the Bible's hard to understand and it's off putting. So we create more and more translations that are easier to read and we mm. create more and more Bible reading methods and the level of uh, Bible illiteracy continues to go down. Mm. My pet theory, I have no way of proving this, is that we read the Bible less and less, not because it's hard to understand. Because it's too easy to understand. Oh, interesting. And it forces us to actually deal with the Lord, our God. Hmm. And I don't know about you, but there are days I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He is a, you know, mighty, he's merciful, he's loving, he's gracious, but he also has a vision for us to be better than we are today. That's right. To be more holy, to be more like Christ. And we all know that, that, that the, the, the end process is, awfully awesome yeah Yeah. the process in between is sometimes painful the chiseling the hammering away right i'm wondering as somebody again as the editor-in-chief of christian day you guys are in steeped in evangelicalism are you guys are you personally hopeful for american christianity where it's going or are you all the way in the other end like man we need a reformation (laughs) like there's that we need something big somewhere in the middle where where are you personally at well, I, I certainly think we need a reformation, certainly in evangelicalism. I mean, mm. evangelicalism started with, uh, with, with people being on fire, you know, the cliche on fire for mm-hmm. the Lord. Of course, it was an awakening, an unusual moment, but uh, there was this vital, personal, living relationship with Christ that they were known for. Yeah. I do think it would be helpful, Lord, you know, to mm. bring us another revival, but that's mm. up to him and his timing. Um. In the, in the question of whether I'm hopeful, uh, the answer is, of course, I'm hopeful because yeah. God has never deserted his church. Mm, that's right. uh, things might get a lot worse for another decade or two or maybe even a century. I don't know. Mm. But I'm certainly not unhopeful. I mean, people talk about the evangelical movement uh, in crisis and fading away. And that may be. And maybe the modern expression of evangelicalism may fade away. But the Lord in every generation has raised up people who love Jesus. Yes. Who respect the authority of scripture and obey it who emphasize the cross and the resurrection and want to be out there witnessing for Christ in word and deed, he'll raise up another group. I don't know. They might be called something else, (laughs) 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 but uh, he's a good God. He's not going to, he's not going to leave us. Yes. 
Okay, so that's actually, I think, a perfect segue because one of the entries in this essay series, the title alone is pretty provocative, and I, and I know that you caught some heat for it even. Uh, the title is The Church Does Not Exist for the Sake of the World. Would you just unpack that a little bit and maybe, if you have time, explain some of the heat that you got and how you, how you responded to that? Yeah, the, well, the heat comes from people who are really, really uh, impressive Christians who, who mm. emphasize the missional, the mission, the church's missional uh, role or yeah. its mission, right. but it's more simply, right. which is to uh, love the neighbor as the self. And sometimes that love means sharing the gospel. Sometimes it means feeding the hungry. That's right. yeah. Sometimes it means working for racial justice. Uh, but, uh, as I point out in these essays, when, when missional starts wagging the dog, uh, things are really messed up and, mm. and it's going to lead to, it's either going to lead to more of a social gospel than which God becomes more per- peripheral element, mm. or it's going to, uh, lead people just to leave the church. Because if you actually want to make a difference in the world, yeah. you should go into politics or you should go into business because they're really good at that. Interesting. Mm. Uh, church is only so-so at that sort of thing. Uh, but what we're really good at is uh, we have a 2,000-year tradition of uh, worshiping God, of discipling people. Hmm. One of the things we disciple them to do is to love the neighbor and to go out and mission. That's right. Uh, and that if you look at Scripture, you look at the all the eschatological passages, the passages that talk about what is the end time like. Right. They all have to do with the People of God from all over the world, all the cultures of the world, all the kings of the earth come together in the new Jerusalem and they worship Hmm. and they glorify him. And they are just filled with beatitude, with blessing, with with joy and happiness. That's really good. Being in the presence of God. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that indicates to me that we are a little askew in terms of our understanding right now is that when people say, well, you mean heaven's just a worship service? Mm. That makes it sound so boring to them. Yeah. But if heaven is a place where I could still can play soccer and go fly fishing and do my painting, <laughs> that's much more interesting. Right. And I'm thinking, when I feel that, I'm thinking, okay, that God is the greatest. Mm. The thing I enjoy about fly fishing or whatever is a hint wow. of how great God is. Wow. It's a picture. It's a little taste. Yeah. So... um I forget what the question was, but I just rambled on. <laughs> no, you, my preacher great. got it. No, you answered so, it beautifully. Right. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to Mark Galley. He's the editor in chief of Christianity uh, today. If you've got feedback, questions, whatever you would like to give us, you could do so at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, or you can text us at 68683. Uh, for Ian Simkins, I'm Brian Fromm. This is the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows at 1160hope.com or on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, we are joined one more one more segment here by Mark Galley, Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today. Thanks for letting us keep you for so long. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. <laughs> so just this weekend, I was online looking around, and uh, I follow Christianity Today on Twitter, and up pops an article called The Temptations of Evangelical Worship. As a pastor and as an evangelical and a radio host, I'm like, wow, this is down my alley. I want to read this. And, uh, and as I read it, I was like, oh, who wrote it? Re- realize that you wrote it. So that's wading into, you know, some choppy waters. And, and so I'm curious um, if you could just kind of summarize for us, what are the temptations of evangelical worship? And in it, you kind of give some critique as to some things that 
uh, are dangerous or, or bothersome about yeah. typical evangelical yeah. worship that uh, I think are very interesting. Well, the uh, the the new music that we enjoy today called praise music or mm-hmm. worship music, however you want to call it, has actually been a tremendous boon for the church. I think it's actually accomplishing a lot of the things I'm trying to accomplish in this service in, hmm. in the sense that it's, it, it's attempt is to focus worship on God and to glorify God. So I'd want to start off by saying that even though I'm a, an old fashioned Anglican who loves his <laughs> hymns, I get yes, it. Right. I get the, I get the new music stuff. Right. Um, but here's the thing I've noticed in, in services in myself and uh, seemingly in, in the people that worship with me is that, I don't know sometimes if we know what we're singing, mm. which makes me wonder if I, if we really know what we're there for. So for example, we sing a song that says, bring your glory down, Lord. Well, I want to see your glory, right? Uh, make me aware of your glory. And I don't think we know what we're asking for because <laughs> in the Bible, when the glory of God comes down to people, yeah. Isaiah falls on the ground afraid mm-hmm. he's going to die. Right. People freak out. People yeah. freak out. Yeah. When Jesus shows his glory in the catch of the fish, Peter falls to his knees and says, Lord, I am a sinner. Uh, but this isn't what we're looking for when we sing that song. What we're looking for is a, an, a, an uplifting, emotional, spiritual yeah. experience, mm-hmm. which let's just say it, that is a great thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But. I think contemporary worship often wants to focus on only on that mm. uh, moving people toward a positive spiritual experience, which makes me sometimes wonder when I walk into wor- worship, do I want to now worship God and meet him? Even if it's not going to be a good experience, right? Or do I just come to church because I want a really good spiritual experience? Right. And that would be another example of how the horizontal, what goes on in me and among others often ends up trumping the vertical. That's right. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of the basic baseline. And again, you can't, I'm not criticizing worship music. Right. I'm not criticizing the raising of hands in worship and looking for some infusion of love and grace. Right. Uh, what I'm look, asking people to do is, uh, again, just look into your heart. Not, not during the service. You don't want to be super introspective while you're in worship. But later go, uh you know, how can I enter into worship so that it isn't just about me and my feelings? That's right. But it is really about God. And I'm asking us just to do a self-inventory. I'm not That's trying great. to condemn what we're doing, but I am saying, and I, I'm, I make no excuses. <laughs> Liturgical churches, which I'm a part of, and also just sing, if they just sing classical hymns, believe me, they can make the liturgy the t- total focus of the service. And they can be, after the service, be talking to another about how the acolyte failed to light the right candles. And <laughs> they've got to talk to the pastor about training the acolyte properly. Yes. And you're going, okay, I don't know that that was the purpose of worship to get, yeah, right. to get the liturgy right. That's okay? right. That's right. So it happens in all churches. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little yellow flag. Take a look. Yeah. I think that's so important. One of my mentors and has been for a decade plus is a professor at Judson University, a guy named Warren Anderson, who oversees the whole worship department there. Yeah. And it's taught me so much about what this article is asserting so beautifully. And this idea that you touch on a little bit is that even in some of our subtle, easily overlooked language, we talk about worship like it's the opening act to the main event, which is the sermon, which isn't worship. And then we have Ties yeah. and offerings in the table and all of that. Yeah. How do you help? Because I think sometimes like when I, Brian and I both talked about this, when we bring up like, let's well, all worship. In fact, even when we leave this building, it's worship. 
Uh, and sometimes people kind of roll their eyes like, we get it, Pastor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Talking like a pastor but seriously, again. let's close in worship. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, so how do you help without making it seem like you're majoring in the minors or you're parsing hairs? Like, how do you help people have a better understanding whether or not their stylistic um, proclivities differ? Because you talk about the part rock band, part late night comedy show, which yeah. when that preaching one comes out, I, I am going to have to read it. And I hope that you'll come back because I can't wait okay. to hear what you have to say. But how, but all that to say, it how might you, be painful. Yeah, right. I'm sure it will be. But how do you how do you help people begin to at least expand some of the categories of what it is that you're talking about without scaring them off or make it seem like you're just getting caught in semantics? Well, I think one thing might be to help people understand uh, that worship, even though I emphasize the the part in which we give glory and honor to God, worship in itself is a dialogue always, and there's those good. parts of the service in which we are giving praise or confessing to God. Right. There are parts of the service in which God is speaking to us. And that's yes. through the scripture reading, for example, yes. through the preaching of the word. Uh, and this is a, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a drama. It's a, hmm. it's a dialogue uh, that's going on now in worship. The difference between worship in a church setting and worship out in the world. Uh, obviously there are everybody, everybody has a liturgy of some sort in which right. they find this is the best way to carry on this conversation with God and this dialogue with God. Mm. And it's really, it's much more intense than things that happen in the world. But if we conceive of worship, not just as something we give to God, but that it's this dialogue that's going on, then every part of the service has mm. meaning. Mm. The, the sermon is God to us. The offering is offering to God. Mm-hmm. The hymns can, can work either way. Actually. That's right. That's right. It can be God speaking to us or us praising God. Uh, and it, it's this, back and forth thing that makes it so to me dynamic interesting and finally it's like a dance almost it's like yeah. a dance another yeah. dance would be an, a dance would be another way of wow. putting it that's yeah. beautiful uh taking the topic a little differently as the editor-in-chief of christianity today I, I really just wanted to ask you as i was thinking about this interview like what's that like <laughs> like you're part of a institution and in evangelicalism started literally by billy graham and like i wonder if that's pressure or is that an honor <laughs> or is it both like what is it like to well, lead? What is it like to lead a publication like Christianity Today? Well, it is a responsibility, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but it, it is an it, it is an onerous responsibility, especially when you buy, you know, quote unquote, buy into the mission and the mm-hmm. way we do it, which yeah. is uh, we try to be faithful biblically to what we think Christ is calling us to do in the world today, mm-hmm. and we try to engage people in ways that are what we call ironic, uh, love people. You know, speak the truth in love. We that's try right. not to be mean spirited. We yeah. try to be fair to people we disagree with, that sort mm. of thing. And I think that's just a tremendous mission. Uh, well, here's how it works. If anything happens on Christianity you like, well, I'm responsible for it. <laughs> and if you don't like it, somehow I had nothing to do with it. It was while right, you were right. out of the office. So, right. <laughs> I was on vacation that week. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, uh, as editor in chief, of course, I don't see everything that goes up beforehand. Yeah, right. I, I, I'm not involved in the day to day. I try to set vision. I talk to the senior leaders who actually are responsible for that. Right. Uh, so that, that's part of my job. Uh, big issues. Uh, I ask to see copy ahead of time. Uh, right. That's obvious, uh, but I also do other stuff like some fundraising because we're a nonprofit, uh, and I, I I do you know these silly crazy radio shows when I wanted to come on. <laughs> silly crazy, I'll take that. <laughs> we'll, we'll That's fitting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, partly to yeah communicate things that I've been writing, but I've yeah. been writing them on behalf of Christianity Today, right? Uh, and I do want other people to 
spread those, spread that word and see if it makes sense to people. Hopefully they'll find it helpful. I love that. All right. So like in 30 seconds or less, I mentioned this earlier. We know that there's plenty of people that listen, some who are deeply entrenched in the local church, many of whom have been burned by it and walked away. Some who are, are maybe dipping a toe in the waters for the very first time. Could you just maybe speak to the person who's feeling discouraged? They're feeling underwater. They're feeling like they're coming unraveled a little bit. Could you just pastor our audience a little bit yeah. to close? Well, I think the church is it. Uh, the, the The world was created. Uh, God created the world for the church, and the church is the ultimate expression, as I said, of God, of our meeting with God in the in the in the end times yeah. or the the eschaton. Mm. Yeah, but it is a frustrating place. Mm. The thing I love about the church is the thing that makes me most irritated with it. It is the, <laughs> it is a perfect laboratory of love. Because oh, you have good. to learn to get along with people you really disagree with. And you have to learn to start to respect pastors who you think are kind of cockeyed. And you have to uh, wor- mm. sing worship songs with people who song- you don't like their taste in music. Yeah, right. And there is no better place to learn what it means to love God and love your neighbor than the local church. It's Amen. just a mm. tremendous laboratory for that. And that's one of the reasons. If you're discouraged, well, yeah. Yep, of course. We hear you. Your your spirit's being tested and your maturity is being called on. Sounds yeah. good. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been great. You've been listening uh, to Mark Galley. He is the uh, he's the editor in chief of Christianity Today. We can't encourage you enough to go online to christianitytoday.com and you can find the elusive present series that he so wrote. Good. So good. Also, I saw at the end you can subscribe. I believe it's called the Galley Report. You write a regular newsletter. Yep, comes out on Friday. There Comment you- on articles that I link to. That's yes. wonderful. So we'd encourage you to do that. Mark, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate Welcome. it. I'm happy to do it. Again, thanks. this is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.